who are joining us for the first time as our guests. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us, uh, and uh, just grateful that you've chosen to spend this morning uh, worshiping our Savior together with us here at Indian Creek. We have been, for almost the last year, working our way paragraph by paragraph through Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're uh, within sight of the end, uh, but it's a glorious finale that we're going to see, and uh, you'll see what I mean here when we read the text. Uh, Let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, all the way to the end of the chapter. Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of God. As we go to prayer, uh, let's 
remember the Beeman family. Uh, most of you probably have not heard yet that yesterday Susan Beeman went home to be with the Lord. Uh, she had been staying with family out in West Texas, and uh, her uh, services will be on December 15th. Uh, more details to come about that, um, but be praying for the Beemans. And uh, Susan, of course, was a, a member of our church family, and uh, we'll miss her a lot, uh, but let's uh, be praying for them, and uh, let's uh, as well pray for our time together in God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sharing your glory with us. Even though we chose rebellion, even though we chose condemnation, even though we chose death, you didn't wipe the slate clean and start over. You pursued us. And you went so far as to send your one and only Son, the only begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light. And he became a man and was born of the Virgin Mary. And as we celebrate that on Christmas, we're also celebrating the reality that your son, Jesus Christ, went to the cross for us and was killed violently, criminally, evilly, and yet death could not hold him. And we serve a risen Savior today. Jesus, we know that you intercede for us because we cannot speak to God the Father on our own behalf and so we rely on your intercession, we rely on your blood, and we thank you and we praise you and we give you glory in the highest. And Father, most of all, we thank you for the hope, knowing that death is not the end, knowing that you have defeated the last enemy and that you will one day change even us to be like your Son and to enjoy the glories of the new creation without end. And so, Father, I pray that you would just cause us to look up from the trials, the difficulties, the pressures, the temptations of this life, and look at what you're doing in the world, and look at what our future holds, so that we might live obediently to you and empowered by you. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Growing up, I would not have admitted it to anyone but I was actually a little afraid of heaven. I was afraid to die too, but that's not what I'm talking about. I was afraid of heaven. And uh, for some reason, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. Some of you probably can relate. I had picked up some wacky ideas about heaven here and there as a youngster in spite of being a regular at church and in Sunday school and children's church and in Awana. For example, heaven sounded to me like a really bright place. Whenever we were given pictures of heaven to color as a child, these, there were these you know, clouds and lines shining everywhere, and so you, you know, we had to share the yellow crayons. And listen, I didn't particularly like the color yellow. I was concerned about that. And I, I always hated to feel like the sun was shining in my eyes, and so I was thinking of heaven, you know, I, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Seems like I might need some sunglasses. I, I remember overhearing someone say in passing that heaven was going to be like a glorious worship service where we would sing the praises of God forever and ever without end. Well, I was, as a youngster, I, I kind of felt like the worship service was long enough as it was. 
I mean, I went to an independent Baptist church, and we had Sunday morning service and Sunday night service, and some of those Sunday night services, we would have what we called a singspiration. Does anybody know what a singspiration is? That might have been a Pennsylvania thing. But the song leader would get up, and he would say, is there any favorites? And we would sing the favorites from the hymnal, and uh, after four or five of those, your throat gets a little parched. And your head feels like it's stuffed with cotton balls. Heaven, it, it's not sounding too appealing to me as a young man. I bet you've had some crazy ideas about what happens after death as well. It's funny, of course, until the time comes for us to bury somebody that we love. That's when our weird ideas about heaven rise to the surface. And I can tell you from experience that even for people who have been following Christ for a very long time, often these notions that we have are borrowed more from popular culture or country music than the pages of the Bible. And frankly, that's not funny. That's not cute. That's a little tragic. See, I'm convinced that the real problem is that our focus somehow is in entirely the wrong place. We get preoccupied with what happens to a person when they die. But listen, the New Testament says almost nothing about that. Not nothing, but almost nothing. Uh, The focus of the hope of the New Testament writers like Paul or John or Peter is not on what happens to a Christian when they die, but on what happens at the end of the age when Christ returns. And yes, it's true that Paul tells us, for example, in Philippians chapter 1, that he'd rather be with Christ, and he's talking about his own death. So he's talking about the reality that when we die as believers, we're going to be with him. Jesus told the man on the cross that today you're going to be with me in paradise. There is some information. We get these glimpses. But the focus of the New Testament and the focus of our passage today is not on the believer going to heaven. It's on heaven coming down to earth and changing us. Let me put it as simply as I can. If you are a believer in Jesus, then you really will come back to life and live forever. You, not your memory, not a ghost, phantom, Star Wars, use the force version of you, not your genetics, you in the flesh, that's your future if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will rise again. And in this text, now that leaves us with some questions, doesn't it? And in this text, Paul is going to answer three of those questions. Question number one, what kind of body am I going to have? Question number two, when is this going to happen? And then question number three, why is this important to know? So let's consider our first question from verses 35 through 50. What kind of body am I going to have? How are the dead raised, he asks. With what kind of body do they come? I've wondered about this. I'm sure you have as well. Like, how does this work? Surely it's not like a a zombie or a dead, decaying corpse rising and being reanimated like some kind of monster? And, and what about the people whose bodies have lain in the tomb for centuries? How's that going to work? I mean, whatever molecules made up their bodies have now passed into the soil and into other beings. I mean, how in the world is this going to happen? Well, in answer to this question, Paul does two things. He begins in the first few verses with offering a series of analogies or illustrations. In other words, these first verses about seeds and Uh, 
the uh, plants and the animals having different types of flesh. He's not giving us a science lesson. He's giving us some illustrations. And Paul says it's kind of like a seed that goes into the ground, and that seed has to die. That's figurative language. What happens to a seed when it goes into the ground? It breaks apart, and it becomes something different than it was. He says that's similar. By the way, that language comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He said the same thing about himself. Uh, He said that, that I'm going to be like that seed that goes into the ground and dies and bears much fruit. So what he's saying is simply this, that uh, the, what grows out of the seed is going to look very different from the seed, even though it is related to the seed. In just the same way, the body is going to, the resurrection body, the new body that we're going to receive is going to be different, but related to the body we have now. The second point he's making about these illustrations has to do with the differences between humans and animals and birds and sun and moon and stars, and that all comes from Genesis chapter 1. He's kind of going back through Genesis chapter 1 in reverse order. And what he's trying to communicate is that they all differ, all of these things differ by God's design, both in their composition and in their relative splendor. The sun has a different splendor or glory from the moon, and the stars have a different glory or splendor from the sun, so on and so forth. And so what's glorious about us today is different from what's going to be splendid and glorious about us in the new creation. He's saying that just like a sapling is different from a seed, just like the sun is different from another star, it's possible for God to raise the dead with a different kind of life and a different kind of splendor than we had prior to death. So, so, so just to simplify these questions about what kind of body am I going to have or what about the decay of the, you know, the cells in the body and, 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 and all that sort of thing, just let God handle it. Because if he can, if he can form the sun and the moon... And the stars and the animals and the plants and the birds and the fish and and distinguish all of them, then he can give you a new body when you rise from the dead. And so then beginning in verse 42, Paul moves from analogy and illustration to explanation. And he begins to describe how the differences play out in the resurrection body of a redeemed Christian, the dead are going to be raised with a different type of body from the one we have now. And there are actually four specific ways in this text that that illustrate the difference between our body currently and the one that we who are in Christ will have in the resurrection. Notice, first of all, from these verses that our current body wears out, but our new body won't. Our current body wears out, but our new body won't won't. I mean, this is almost impossible to imagine, isn't it? We live in a world that is wearing out. I look around this room and I see people of all different shapes and sizes and ages and backgrounds, but every single person in this room, without exception, is wearing out. Some of you feel it more than others. Others are still young. You have smooth, clear skin, thick hair, strong muscles, Sharp eyes and ears, a brain that can remember things. But, girls, your beauty is going to fade. No Instagram filter is going to change that fact. I'm sorry, it's just the truth. Guys, your strength and your speed is going to wear out. Some of us aren't really that fast to begin with, so... 
But no diet or workout regimen is going to bring is going to turn back time. All of us have a body that's wearing out right now. The health and wellness industry fueled by social media and fed by literally billions of dollars it is this frantic attempt, isn't it, to avoid the inevitable onslaught of time. The other day I went for a jog and I could feel a kind of wobbliness in my knees. And I realized, it just kind of hit me, that they, those knees will never be less wobbly than they are right now. I mean, I just think it's just going one direction. A few weeks ago, I got out of the shower after spending several days in the sunshine, and I looked in the mirror, you know, and wiped off the fog and got ready to start shaving, and I noticed that there were kind of these bags, you know, under my eyes, and I realized, you know, my first thought was, I need to start wearing a hat. And the second thought was, those wrinkles are never going to be less wrinkly than they are right now. It's just going to go one direction. But if you're a believer in Christ, the day is going to come when you have a new body that doesn't wear out. That means that you will one day, one day have a body where the discs in your spine and the vertebrae fit together in the correct way. That's going to happen. Where your eyeballs work correctly and you don't have to feel around for your glasses. A body that stands up straight, that can leap and jump and run. Vocal cords that can produce a pleasant melody. Wouldn't that be nice? Think about this. You will never, ever, ever get bored with the glories and the wonders of God's creation. Isn't that part of the problem of living in a body that wears out? The first time, can you remember the first time you went to the beach and you saw the ocean spreading out before you and you felt your toes in the sand and the warm sun on your face and just how exhilarating that was. And then the second time, it's a little less. The third time, a little less. Tenth time, a lot less. Same thing with any experience, the overlooks in the mountains or the trips to the zoo. I mean, that's one of the things we love about taking kids to the zoo because they're seeing it for the first time. But they're the ones that are really seeing what God has done. We're the ones who are worn out with it because our body wants to take us back to this steady state. But in the new creation, in our resurrection body, it will not wear out and we will never grow bored with the wonders of God's world. So the first difference between now and then is that our current body wears out. The body we'll have in the resurrection will not. Secondly, this body that we have now dies in shame and weakness. But our new body will rise in honor and power. This body dies in shame and weakness, but the new body will rise in honor and power. Uh, Paul says it's sown in dishonor, that is, it's put into the ground in dishonor, and it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. One of the greatest difficulties we face today is how undignified, how shameful it is to experience our mortality. Those of you who are older, than I am, understand what I mean. You used to be able to jump from the bed of your truck down onto the driveway, and now if you did that, you would be in the hospital. <laughs> you used to be able to write in this beautiful flowing cursive, and now when you write it looks like a spider has created a web on the page. And that's a little embarrassing. We feel a little ashamed of that, and it's unavoidable. The way that our body is sown in the ground like a seed at death is 
dishonorable, and we clothe it in honor. We honor the dead, but the truth of the matter is, is that we feel the shame and the dishonor of it. We feel that something is wrong, but whatever shame and weakness accompanies our death, the resurrection will be the opposite. You remember how Adam and Eve in the, new, in the, the uh, first creation, the innocent, pure version of this world before sin came in, do you remember how they were naked and they were unashamed? Uh, they didn't even real. they were so innocent, they didn't even realize their own nakedness. And I'm not saying we're going to be naked in the new creation. I have no idea, okay? But that kind of self-forgetfulness, we're just going to be enjoying God. We're just going to be enjoying all the wonderful things that God has done. We're not going to be thinking about ourselves and how we look. We're going to get that, uh, that, that shame and that uh, dishonor is going to be replaced by power and glory. This body dies in weakness and dishonor, but for the believer, it will rise in glory and power. Third comparison, third contrast has to do with the very nature of the substance of our bodies. And I know I'm moving kind of quickly through these. They're worth chewing on. But notice how Paul says in verse 44 that this body is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. You'll notice that there's a contrast running through the passage between the natural and the spiritual. What is the meaning behind that contrast. So let's just stop on this for a moment. The word translated natural is the word psuchikos. And I know some of you speak Greek in this room, and I don't, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Psuchikos. What words do we use in English that come from a word like that? The the word psychology or psyche. Uh, When we think of the word psyche in modern times or the soul, as it's often translated in the pages of the New Testament, we often mean to speak about the immaterial part of ourselves as opposed to the material part of ourselves. That's what we think of when we think of the psyche. It's an immaterial part of who we are. But notice how Paul is using this word, this word natural. That's how it's translated in my version of the Bible. It might be a different word for you. But how does he use it? Notice that grammatically, it's, a, it's actually an adjective. And what does an adjective do? class. It, it modifies a noun or describes a noun, right? So what's the noun that, that Paul's describing? Look at verse uh, 44. What noun is being described by that adjective natural? What noun? Starts with a B. Body. Okay, good. So in other words, we're thinking of that idea of the soul or soulish or the psyche, this immaterial part of us, We're thinking of something different from the body, but Paul is actually using that word to describe the body. He's saying, now we have a body that is soulish or that is tied to the the psyche, so to speak, and then we'll have a body that is spiritual. So what is it that we need to understand about what Paul is communicating about this? Because it doesn't seem to fit into our categories of how we use these words. Well, in order to understand that, we need to go back to the way that Paul uses these terms in this letter. And the first time he's made this comparison occurs in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul, in that context, is talking about the wisdom of God in comparison with the wisdom of the world. And he says that the Spirit of God is the only person who understands the mind of God and the thoughts of God. And he says those thoughts, they're spiritually discerned. And he says... The natural man 
can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Only a spiritual person can understand the things of the Spirit, Spirit of God. And what, what is he saying? He's saying a, a natural person is someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God, and a, a spiritual person is somebody who does have the Spirit of God. That, that's why we can understand spiritual truth. And so bring that into to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is saying uh, that our current body is a natural body. In other words, it's merely human. It's flesh and blood. He says later in the passage, it's dust, just like Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. And so it's tied to this life. And what we need is a higher life, a different kind of glory than what we currently possess. And that only comes about through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. So what, what, what Paul is saying, I know it's a little fuzzy, But he's not saying that we're going to be spiritual in the sense of being less than physical. It's not that I lose the body and I become a spirit and float around and and haunt people, okay? It's not that I'm less than physical. It's that when Christ raises the dead, we're going to be more than what we are now. We're going to be clothed with something that we don't currently have. We won't be limited by the kinds of things that limit our physical bodies today. Now, that's hard for us to wrap our mind around because we live in the natural body kind of realm, right? So it's a little bit hard to understand, but let's, let's jump to the fourth difference, and I think that'll illustrate what Paul is talking about. Difference number one, our, our bodies wear out. In the, in the resurrection, they're not going to wear out. Difference number two, uh, we die in shame and weakness, and we're raised in glory and power. Difference number three, We have a natural body now. We're going to have a spiritual body then. Here's difference number four, and that's going to help us understand the other three. Here's number four. Our current bodies are formed in the image of the first Adam, and our resurrection body will be formed in the image of the second Adam. Our current bodies are formed in the image of the first Adam. Our our, Our resurrection body is going to be formed in the image of the second Adam. In other words... Here's what I mean. Our new bodies will be like Christ's resurrection body. So think about what that means. What was true of Jesus' resurrected body will be true of our resurrected bodies. Think about this. Jesus' new body was a spiritual body, but that didn't make it less than physical. Think about what Jesus did. He had no problem speaking, for example. What, what does speaking involve? It involves air molecules passing over your vocal cords and going out into the air. I mean, that's a physical act, right? Speaking so that people can hear. He had no problem doing that. Jesus ate breakfast with his disciples. That's a physical, yeah. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody's listening to the main points, the main ideas of the sermon. He had no problem with eating breakfast. He walked and talked with others. He was touched by the eyewitnesses of his resurrection. John, have you ever read 1 John? He says, what I'm proclaiming to you is what our hands have handled. So he's not less than physical, but he is a spiritual body because at the same time, Jesus was different after his resurrection. He was in a state of glory. He, He could actually pass through walls. They were behind locked doors and Jesus came in. That's not something I can currently do. My mother had eyes in the back of her head, but I haven't met anybody that could pass through walls. 
But Jesus could do that. And the Bible, the Bible tells us we're going to be in the image of the second Adam. We're going to be in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. A body that won't wear out. A body that won't be weak or shameful. A body that won't be merely natural. A body just like the one of the glorified and risen Christ. And if you have trouble believing that that is true, that that is going to happen, remember what Paul said earlier in this chapter. He said, more than 500 brothers and sisters can tell you We saw it with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. We heard him talk. We know he's alive today. And so what's true of him is going to be true of those who are in Christ. This is the future of the believer. One day, whether dead or living, all those who are in Christ will be raised with a new body, a body imperishable and suited for the new creation, for the new world that God has remaking for the day when heaven comes down to earth and we enjoy all the glories of a perfected world in the presence of a perfect savior now that doesn't leave all of our questions answered we know that that's just the reality in which we live we live by faith and not by sight but hopefully it gives you a little bit of an idea of the answer to the question what body what kind of a body am i going to have in the resurrection that's question number one Consider our second question from verses 51 through 53. When is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Well, look at Paul's answer in verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Now, again, Not all the specifics of all the questions that you have are going to be answered, but he does give us some answers here in these verses. Consider the details of what Paul is saying. When am I going to receive my resurrection body? Well, first of all, this does not happen, folks, at the moment we die. It does not happen at the moment we die. That's the first thing we need to realize. Did you notice the term Paul uses to describe death? He says we shall not all what? Sleep. That is figurative language to describe what happens to a believer after he dies. He uses that term in this chapter. He used it once in chapter 11. It's a figurative way to talk about the time period in between when the believer dies and the moment when we receive that new body we just talked about a few moments ago. So just practically, I think this is important for us to remember. When you're standing by the graveside, of a Christian loved one. Sometimes we Christians feel a little guilty that we stand there and we look at the casket and we look at the hole in the ground and we feel like something's wrong. We feel like we're grieving and we feel like, man, if my faith were stronger, I should be happy for my loved one because they're with Jesus. And and that's true to a point. But it's also true that that person that's lying there is waiting too. They're waiting for the resurrection because the the moment that I receive the new body is not the same moment that I die. It's different. So it's normal and appropriate to feel like that moment of, of the graveside service is not the end of the story. They are waiting and so are you. So the hope is not primarily that they are in heaven when they die. Yes, that is part of our hope, but the hope ultimately is that Christ will raise them from the dead to walk with him in the new creation forever. And that hasn't happened yet. We're all waiting for that. Now, Paul does say 
that not all of us are going to experience that. Uh, When Christ returns, there are going to be believers who are alive and remain. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Whether we're living or dead, when Christ returns, those who are in him, those who have believed in him, will receive that glorious resurrected body. Notice the second thing Paul makes clear about this uh, timeline. When is this going to happen? He says it's not, going, it, it, it's not going to happen gradually. It's going to happen all at once, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, right away. It's going to happen not in a drawn-out process like purgatory. It's going to happen immediately. And then notice the third thing that Paul says. It's not going to take place concurrent with our death. It's not going to be gradual. But then notice this phrase, at the last trumpet. Why a trumpet? And I know I'm moving quickly through this. But if you go back through the Old Testament and you examine all the places where that idea of a trumpet comes out, places like Isaiah 27 or Joel chapter 2 or Zephaniah chapter 1, you'll notice that a trumpet is associated with the gathering of God's people. So God's angel blows a trumpet and God's people come. That's a theme throughout all of Scripture. And so the resurrection of the saints is going to take place at this moment when the last trumpet blows and all of the saints are gathered together. In other words, the resurrection takes place at the end of the world. Say, well, when is that going to be? What's the date and the year and and, uh, what's the hour? No one knows, okay? That's coming when God wants it to come. Say, well, what what about the details of that and like what kind of things are going to be in the newspaper and things like that Uh, so that I know it's coming and can be ready? Uh, You need to be ready anyway. (laughs) Uh, Listen, in in all seriousness, is it going to be at the end of a millennial kingdom already inaugurated in heaven? Is it going to be at the end of a millennial kingdom that's gradually inaugurated because of the triumph of the church in the world? Is it going to be before that millennial kingdom comes to earth? These are important questions, and I have an opinion about them, and I'm sure you do too, and I'm sure we could talk about them for a long time, but here are some facts that we can take with us today. Number one, it is going to happen. You will, if you're in Christ, be raised. I don't know the details of what's going to be happening around that time, but it's going to happen. Number two, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And then number three, it's going to be breathtakingly glorious when it does. I can't wait. To me, that's enough. Is that enough for you? (laughs) I mean, I want to answer the questions as well, but at the end of the day, I know that because Christ was raised from the dead and I'm in him and he's mine, that one day I'm going to be raised as well. And I'm excited about that fact. Question number one, what kind of body will believers have in the new creation? Question number two,